listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is Delaney Stoner, and I'm the Families Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee, Florida, and our heart is to reach the city by loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We'd love to have you join us as we gather each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. If you would like to make a financial contribution, learn more about DCC, or contact us, please visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon and thank you for being a part of our mission as we continue to spread the gospel to Tallahassee and beyond. We're in the book of James right now, um, if you can't tell. Um, and uh, I'm really excited about the book of James. Let me tell you why. Um, for many of us, as you, as you read the Bible, and especially if you're uh, newer to faith, uh, the Bible can be really difficult. And what I mean by that is um, it was written over hundreds of years in a number of different languages, over a num- in, in a number of different continents, um, to a number of different groups of people, in a number of different contexts. So there are so many variables that oftentimes when you sit down to read, and let's say you just got super spiritual one morning, you're like, man, I'm about to dig into some chronicles. Um, Or you're like, you know what? I have never read the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And you crack open, you know, you read a little bit of Amos or Ezekiel um, or perhaps, you know, a Zephaniah. And you're like, how do you even pronounce that? Let alone what in the world is he talking about? And then perhaps you go to the New Testament and it can be equally as difficult because they're talking about a lot of stuff. In the New Testament, there's a lot of um, pre-packaged information or assumed information as they were writing to an audience who oftentimes was very religiously familiar, especially in the the Judeo-Christian monotheistic thought, that when you read the Bible, all that to simply say this, when you read the Bible, it can be very difficult to one, understand, to two, know how to extrapolate what you understand out of their context and apply it clearly and cleanly into our current context. Now, the book of James is a fantastic starting point if you have ever struggled with that. Because the book of James is so straightforward. The book of James, the ideas that he gives, there's not this level of ambiguity or spiritual missiness. James is so straightforward that if you have ever struggled with that, then I'm so glad that you're here because James just leaves no room for interpretation. And if you have been a Christian for a long time, Perhaps you've read the book of James over and over and over and over again, and you know by heart, James chapter 1, verse 2, you know, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance as much as it finishes its work, because it be mature and complete and not lacking anything, la da 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 I've heard this sermon, I get that. Okay, here's the deal for you. James is important because James was so deeply spiritual. James was the leader James was the head of the church of Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of both Christianity and persecution of Christianity. And James was kind of the senior pastor of the church of Jerusalem. James, who was noted for having, they they called him camel knees, and it it wasn't a derogatory statement, although easily could have gotten that in the middle school way. Um, Because his knees had been so callous because of the amount of time that James spent in prayer. In other words, James who is deeply spiritual, wrote a letter to say, this is how, this is the level to which my relationship with Jesus, my information of Jesus, the understanding of Jesus being the risen son of God and my belief in that impacts and applies to how I live every single day. Now, let me tell you why that's important. We're going to preface most weeks with that thought process, and here's why. The book of James, because it's so practical, 
is easy to become a self-help manual. Just do this and have a better life. Three steps to a better life. In other words, it's easy for James to become something to say, I'm going to behave a certain way in order to, to basically prove to God that I believe in you. In other words, I'm going to behave so that God will believe that I believe. And James would say, no, 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 no. I believe, and out of this belief, this is how we ought to behave. Because if we're being honest, there is in many of us a cognitive dissonance in that. If you're not, you know, savvy in the mental health game, that's totally fine. I wouldn't be either. My wife's a therapist, so she just sometimes throws these words at me. I'm like, okay, Google. You know, I'm not going to admit that I don't know it. So basically what that means is sometimes there's a gap, a cognitive dissonance. There's a dissonance between what we believe and how we behave, our attitude and our actions, that there oftentimes in the Christian is a cognitive dissonance between what we believe and how we behave. And James is writing to bring balance to or to clarify many of those places in which we find this. In fact, James today... Is going to basically summarize why this is so important. James is basically going to summarize why and how we ought to live based on what we believe. Here's, here's the summary of today, okay? It's going to be, let me just kind of warn you. It's going to be super complex. In fact, it's going to be so complex, if you haven't been a Christian for at least 10 years, you're probably not going to get it, okay? So here it is. If God said it, we should do it. I know, I know. Tease it out a little bit. If the, if for Christians, if the Bible says it, we should do it. Now, I know at this point you're thinking, Ben, how are you so wise? You know, I mean, the level, I mean, did you just spend hours in prayer and meditation? I mean, how many, you know, times of just, you know, fasting and sitting in sackcloth and ash did it take for God to drop such extraordinary wisdom? I'd say, I know, you know, aren't you glad I'm the pastor? No, no, it's, it's almost embarrassing how intuitive and how obvious this is. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're wrestling with, with, with Christianity, with Jesus, with God, with the Bible, then this doesn't necessarily apply to you because you, obviously you don't hold the Bible as authoritative. But if you do, then the understanding is if God said it, we should do it. If God said it, we should do it. If God said it, we should do it. And it's almost embarrassing. But here's how, as I, as I was thinking about this, as, as obvious as that is, I'm going to tell you um, what I see us doing. So this is just me as a um, social scientist, which I'm absolutely not. So you probably have your own thing. But here's how I interpreted how we take that. If God said it, and I agree with it, and it's easy to integrate into my life. So if God said it, and you know, I, okay, God, you said it. But then also, you know, by the way, I agree with what you said. I believe, I agree that this is the right way to live. I agree this is the right thing to do. I agree with what you said. And um, it, it's fairly simple to integrate into my life. And I see an immediate benefit from it. Because if there's not an immediate benefit, it's just going to take too much of what's next. That if I don't think that it takes too much self-discipline, then I'll do it. In other words, if God says it, and I agree with it, and it's easy to integrate, and it has a relatively timely uh, benefit to it, and it doesn't take too much self-discipline, then I am going to do it. Now, for being honest... For most of us, that's kind of where we are. You hear it and you hear sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. Perhaps you, you go and you, and you 
read the Bible for yourself, you spend some time in prayer, and you feel like, you know, this is something that you ought to do as a Christian, that, you know, God is telling you to do, or God is, you know, strutting through his word, and you walk away from a sermon, you feel super convicted, and, oh, you know, you get that feeling, and then you walk away thinking, whoo, that was good, I'm ready for lunch, what's next, you know, and we, and we kind of walk away, and so what James is going to write to us, in fact, what James is writing to his original audience, they actually had a much more difficult time um, doing what God said, and here's why. In their context, they began to face extraordinary persecution. They began to face persecution where for us, if anything impends on our religious liberty, then we just freak out for them. If you believed in Jesus, you could be killed. If you believed in Jesus, the persecution was ramping up, which usually meant that, that for them they were impoverished. The, the, the persecution would ramp up, which meant there was physical danger. The persecution ramped up, and so there was more internal conflict because external you know, pressure always causes internal conflict. And so for them, it was so much more difficult to do what God said because the stakes were so much higher. But I want you to hear what James says because it is so true of us today. So if you've got your Bible... I'm going to start at James chapter 1 in verse 22. James chapter 1 verse 22. Here's what he says. Talking to the early church. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. In other words, there can be a deception. And here's what the deception is. For you to think or for me to think that because I heard it, that's what matters. Because I listened to it, because a pastor said it, that's what matters. Because there was some type of an understanding of the information, that makes a difference. And and, and if we're being, again, totally transparent, what most of us do isn't just the acquisition of information. It's the emotion that that happens when we understand that cognitive dissonance. That was too wordy for you. Let me just say this. Sometimes at church, we feel like it's valuable when we feel like horrible human beings. Anybody else ever done that before? Don't raise your hand, okay? You go to what you go to, and you, and you hear something, the pastor says something, and you walk away like, oh, you know, I just, man, I feel like church was so good today. Why was it good? Because I feel awful. It's like, what? <laughs> so I guess that's the point of church. No kid. For many of us, that's the religious experience. The worse I feel, the more sanctified I am. You know, and I walk away, mm, you know, in Christians, you know, we kind of have a, 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 a moo. If you're, if you're new to Christianity and you've seen this, we don't even notice this anymore. We're too close to it. We know it. So somebody will say something, everybody will go, mmm. It's like, mmm. What, what, mm. <laughs> but the reality is, we'll hear it. And we'll think there is intrinsic value simply in hearing and listening to the information. For some of us, this, this, this is what we do. Especially if you're, I mean, if you're just like super solid Christian, whatever. What we do is you hear it. Maybe you read it on your own. And then about Tuesday, the sermon loses its ness. And so we just go and we have, all, you know, from friends' recommendations, we have um, found our favorite celebrity pastor. And so about Wednesday morning, you know, you go back and it says, mm, you know, you're on your way to work mm, and you go to work and you're just so sanctified. Don't apply a darn bit of it, but we just, mm, I just feel so convicted. And for many of us, we, this is crazy, and if you're, if you're new to Christianity, this might sound nuts, but we can take the feeling of conviction in the action of hearing or reading 
The reason he says hear God's word is because for them, many of them were not literate. They did not have open copies of the Bible. They did not have for them what would be the open copies of the Old Testament. So they would gather together in synagogues or in in homes, and someone would read the Old Testament. They would read the law, or they would talk about one of the teachings of Jesus through oral translation. And as they did that, they'd feel, hmm. James says, don't think that that's valuable. In fact, he gives us an illustration. He says, there's the principle. But let me give you the illustration. Actually, he finishes. It says, don't think that it's valuable. Here's what I want you to do. Super cryptic. Do what it says. Okay? Really difficult to understand. Verse 23. Anyone who listens, anyone who listens to the word but does not do it or does not do what it says is like someone who looks at the mirror, is facing a mirror, and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Now, they didn't have mirrors all the time. For us, we got mirrors everywhere. In fact, we have like mirror mirrors, and then we have things that aren't mirrors that we use as mirrors. You know, it's like we have mirrors, and so, you know, you look at the mirror real quick, you know, when you are about to go into a grocery store or something like that, and you just kind of look at the mirror, okay, it's still looking smooth this morning, you know, or um, you look at your reflection in the car door. Some of us are gifted at finding reflective services to make sure we still look good. Um, or we go in, the, obviously, in the morning time and do that, but for them... Mirrors weren't everywhere. In fact, they were rarely smooth. They were rarely, you know, a really good reflection. So they would, they would look, and they would look deep, and they would try to figure out, and they would look at themselves. Sometimes people wouldn't recognize themselves because they didn't see it. In fact, there's like an old story that I don't think it's true, but it's, it's funny nonetheless, um, of like this, this, this Indian, you know, uh, um, uh, he was the head of the tribe. I'm sure there's a name for that, but I, anyway. So, you know, he looked in the mirror and he said, he looked at it and he said, who's this ugly man I see and smashed the mirror? Cause he's just like, that's ridiculous. So the point is, is they didn't have mirrors all the time and they, they would look at it and he says, come on, if you just saw it and totally forgot about it, you wouldn't think that that was valuable. Now, in forgetting, it's not a sense of memorization in the original language. The understanding is it's just not a priority. You see it and think, uh, who cares? Let me tell you something creepy. I know how exactly how long it takes. I know, I know exactly how long each one of you spends looking in the mirror every single morning. I'm watching, just so you know, pastoral. Here's how long. As long as it takes to fix it, whatever it is. Is. And some of you, when you wake up in the morning, you got a lot of it, and it is everywhere, and you spend lots of minutes just fixing and fixing and fixing and adjusting. Some of you, you've like shaved all of it, and you're like, well, your boy looks fresh. You know, first thing out of bed, woke up like this, hashtag. You know, for, but for all of us, we look in the mirror, and we fix whatever we see. And none of us, in looking in the mirror, would look in the mirror, see all of the mess, and think, you know what? I look so good today because I saw myself in the mirror and walk away and just totally forget and think that that matters at all. So James says, come on, if you're a Christian and and you hear it or you read it or you study it or you sat in a group and talked about it, Or you even were so spiritual that you prayed about it and you studied it in the original language. Would you think, or if you think, that that has intrinsic spiritual value and sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, then you're deceiving yourself. 
He continues on. He says on the other side of this. Verse 24, after and after looking at himself, goes away, forget what he looks like. Verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it. There's two parts to this, this idea of freedom. One is that when you look at Christianity, especially if, if you're new, you're wrestling with this idea of Jesus, and this is oftentimes the pushback to the idea of Christianity, is that there is so heavy and intense of a moral framework of all the things you have to do, all the things you, you have to and you, know, you, you can do and you can't do. And there's so many things that you can't do that you want to do, and there's so many things that you have to do that you don't want to do. And it doesn't just seem so con, 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 you know, constricting and, and nobody's perfect. Here's what the idea was behind the law, behind what God says, behind doing what he says. It gives freedom because what the law teaches us is that we are all lawbreakers. We all sin. We all fall short. And God's design was never for us to be perfect. It was to realize our imperfection. And in our imperfection, he sent his perfect son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who died an extraordinarily excruciating death on the cross. And that when we place our faith, our hope, and our trust in him, we are now set free from the law that we don't have to behave our way into God's good graces. But we are free Now we behave because we believe. In other words, for my daughter, I don't care how much she disbehaves. She's still going to be my daughter. But as me as her father and me, I love her. I care about her deeply. I really hope she listens to what I say. Because I care about her. Not because if she doesn't put her shoes on in the morning, she's no longer going to be my daughter anymore. (laughs) Sometimes that feels like it'd be nice, you know. But the reality is... She's my daughter. I love her. I care about her. We have a relationship. And that relationship impacts our life. But our life does not substantiate our relationship. So he says, one, this law gives freedom. Number two, and this is important. You can't miss this. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Now here's what this isn't saying. That if you do what God says, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. When we hear that word blessed, we think, man, that's, that's awesome. So all I got to do is do what God says. And I've been praying that somebody drops a 76 Bronco keys into the offering plate. It's just going to go, go around. And somebody said, Ben, I just have this you know, old historic car that's a classic. And I just, you know, I love you. I love the church. So here's, here's the offering. Be blessed. Now if you want to do that, then you're welcome to give. Um, but the idea here is blessed essentially means that the closest English translations that we have is happy, happy, happy are you when you do this. Now let me explain this because this is, this is so important. When we view God's laws, we both are free to follow God, but in following God, we experience freedom as well. It's a two-part freedom. There's a freedom, there's a relational freedom with God, and then there is a freedom that we experience here on planet earth because we follow God. Now, let me give you a couple examples of this because I know this might, may or may not make sense, but we think that God's laws are constricting, but let me just give you a, a thought. One, forgiveness. Let's talk about that. God says forgive. Forgive. Forgive because as Christians, you have been so deeply forgiven by God. 
That God saw us in our sinfulness. God saw us in our rebellion against him. He sent his son to die for us. If God would forgive me, there is no one on planet earth who I cannot forgive. But let me tell you about forgiveness. Forgiving someone else is almost never about the person you're forgiving needing forgiveness. And it's almost always about the person who is forgiving letting go. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is very rarely about the person that you're forgiving. It is almost always about you letting go of what's happening inside of your heart. For those of you who have gotten to the point where someone has wronged you and you have forgiven this, isn't this true? That when you forgave, you all of a sudden emotionally, for the first time in a long time, in that area of your life, in that area of your heart, you felt free. There's a reason. There's a reason that God said that, hey, sex, purity, is to be in the confines of marriage. Let me tell you why. Purity outside of marriage leads to intimacy inside of marriage. Purity outside of marriage, leads to intimacy inside of marriage. Purity, if I find my intimacy, if I find purity in other things besides for me, my wife, then that means that those are places that I am finding a sense of intimacy in because all of purity essentially is a search for intimacy that we don't necessarily label it that way. We just feel like it's a physical expression. Whole different sermon, whole different day. But simply to say this, that for me and for everyone, study after study after study after study shows that the more pure outside Side of marriage, the more satisfied intimately inside of marriage. And if you were your heavenly father, wouldn't you want all of your people, all of your family to have extraordinarily satisfying and intimate marriages? Not that any of us are perfect, but come on, you experience emotional freedom, you experience relational freedom. You know, you know why we give? Not because God said, you got to give. Give, 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 and because I'm God and I'm needy and I just want your stuff. No, he's God. Let's be honest. If he's God, he could take your stuff if he needed it. The reason we give is, one, because money is the primary competitor for our heart. Money is the primary competitor for our heart. Jesus said it this way, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. In my experience... When I was, you know, young, first job, and I'd never given before because I brought it into the lie that because I don't have a lot, I don't give any because it doesn't matter that much. It has more to do with my heart. It has more to do with God unlocking. So I would just kind of give whenever I had extra. Now we give, we set aside a percentage of our income. You want to know what it does? It makes me feel free because I know everything I have is not meant for my consumption. There is an assumption that everything I have is for my consumption. And on top of that, you want to know what's interesting? Let me just tell you. You don't have to be a Christian to apply this. Most people who give regularly start giving regularly when they're young. Statistically, if you begin to give, and if you, just pause and say this, disclaimer. If you are not a part of our church regularly, if you're not a Christian, then you absolutely do not need to give to our church. If you don't want to give to our church and you are a part of a, and you are a Christian, um, but you're just some, some weirdnesses and some oddities and all that kind of stuff in organized religions, I get it. You should give to a church that you trust. Who perhaps you should go to a different church that you trust. Different sermon, different day. I got like three sermons in this thing today, by the way. So, at, at, at the same time, here's here's the point. Statistically. 
people who give regularly give, start giving before they're 25, number one. In people who give regularly, giving is a keystone habit. There is a disproportionate statistical probability that if you give, you will have more in savings, less in debt, and you will have more what Dave Ramsey would call financial freedom. Come on, man. Listen to Dave. Let's get on the same page, people. So, you know, financial freedom. That if you give, giving is a keystone habit. That when you give, when you give, it unlocks the doors to your heart to realize everything that I make is not, the assumption is not for my consumption, that I, God has given to me so that I can give free to other people. That's why we always say, if you make a lot, you should never feel bad about making a lot. You should simply feel responsible that God has gifted you this to steward it and to manage it with your time on planet Earth. God unlocks the doors of your heart that you have emotional, relational, and financial freedom. And I could go on and on and on and on, but we feel like sometimes God is confining us. We don't understand. God loves us. He is not a dictator. He is a father who already gave his son for us. Jesus, come on. Don't think that hearing is what matters. Don't think that because you, you, you felt bad. I mean, it's like looking in the mirror and just forgetting, not prioritizing. You just forget what you looked like. I'm going to have a couple examples of this. Let me wrap this kind of this, this thought up, and as James is going to clarify a couple of different points just after this. This is like, the best way I can describe this um, so my daughter, she's three years old. We got a son who's one, a daughter, daughter who's three. Her name's Ava. His name is Rhodes. R-H-O-D-E-S, not like highway, <laughs> which is what his grandpa sometimes calls him. Um, we're at that point at, at, at three-year-old stage um, where she knows how to put on her shoes and she can pick out her shoes and she can put them on. Um, but that doesn't mean that she does. Any parent get that? Or like they, they'll, you say, hey, I'm, you know, Ava, hon, I'm about to, you know, put roads in the car. I'm going to, you know, do, do that little thing. We're about ready to go to, to daycare in the morning time. And so I need you to put on your shoes. And she says, okay, you know. So I go put roads in the car and, and I come back. And, and anybody have that thing where like they may do it once out of five times, which gives you hope. You're like, yes, my child is an angel, you know. And the other four mornings you're like, ah, you're Satan, you know. Actually, we're running late and you're Satan. That's going to get behind me. So anyway. This would be like Monday morning, tomorrow morning, you know, go to daycare, and I put Rhodes in the car and said, Ava, I want you to, um, I want you to put your shoes on. And she says, okay, dad, you know, well, she's like, okay, dad, she's usually watching like Thomas the train. And so I put Rhodes in the car and I come back and I say, you know, Ava, why don't you put your shoes on? And she just looks at me, you know, and here's what I say. Well, did you, did you hear me? And she'll say, yeah. My thought is that I am so glad you heard me. My, my question is, so why didn't you? There you go. What wonderful parents you guys are. Yeah. Can you imagine? She comes and says, no, dad, 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 I heard you say it. Wow. And then the next morning I go in and I, I, I you know, put Rose in the car, come back to put Ava in the car. She doesn't have her shoes on. And I talk to her and, and I say, you know, Ava, why aren't your shoes on? She says, dad, 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 come here. I even 
while you were gone, listen to a podcast about how I should do it. Dad, can you believe that? I'll be like, okay, cool. You know, the next morning I come back and put Rose in the car, walk back, talk to Ava, and I say, Ava, you know, why don't you put on your shoes? Dad, 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 dad. I, yesterday, yesterday at the playground, I got nine or ten of my closest, you know, three-year-old buddies, you know, toddler buddies, and we got in a circle, and we talked about the best strategies to implement putting our shoes on, and whether we should use Velcro or just slip-on shoes. We all agreed Velcro was the best strategy. That's the best long-term keep your shoes on. And so, Dad, we talked about it. And in fact, I even asked for prayer at the end of it for it. <laughs> wow. Okay, but your shoes are not on. All right, let's stop there. Now, Dad, 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 I studied what you mean by shoes on. In fact, I studied what shoes mean in the Greek and on means in the Hebrew. Did you know that, Dad? There's a Latin derivative. <laughs> but why aren't your shoes on is what I'd say. And here's the thing, I don't think that, I don't think that we are intentionally wrong, or, or we are wrong, but I don't think it's intentional. I think many of us have simply bought into the idea that because we heard it, it's good enough. Because I know it, it's good enough. There is not an active fight or a struggle. Let me tell you, some mornings she does put her shoes on. And some mornings, bless her heart, she puts her shoes on and she does it wrong. And she'll put the left one on the right foot and the right one on the left foot. And sometimes she'll do that repeatedly. But you know what? I don't look at her and say, I can't believe you put your right shoe on your left foot, your left shoe on your away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. No. It might not be perfect obedience. But I'm honored by the struggle. I'm honored by the effort. I'm honored by the realization that because my father, who I have a relationship with, said this, I'm going to do it. And you know what? I don't ask her to put her shoes on because I hate her, because I'm mad at her, because I want to constrict her. I know, hun, if you don't put them shoes on, those little feet are going to start hurting by the time we hit the end of the driveway. And I love you. I care about you. I want to protect you. I want what's best for you. You can try it. Sometimes I let her try it. Okay, go ahead. We go about halfway down the driveway. Daddy, can I put my shoes on? Can you? Daddy, you hold me. That's what she says. And I don't say, nope. <laughs> you didn't start off doing it, so you're not going to do it now. You evil doer. No, I say, of course. Of course. Perhaps you have not listened to God for so long, you don't even think that God wants you to do what he says. Because you've been traveling down that road for too long. He says, are you kidding me? I'm not a dictator. I'm a father. Real quick, we're going to go through these last, there's two examples that he gives that I think are just extraordinary examples. They're not necessarily tied to the subject, but they're two things of doing that are maybe a little bit different than what we would think. Verse 26. So those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, they deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. This doesn't, just doesn't mean cussing. Doesn't you mean, you know, a lot of different things. Perhaps we don't keep a tight rein on our tongues. We just gossip to everybody. Perhaps we don't keep a tight rein on our tongue. Mark talked about this last week. I thought it was a fantastic point. Might have been the best point in the series so far. When he talked about and said, you know, the Bible says be quick to listen. Slow to anger, slow to speak. A lot of us, we're not very quick to listen. We're relatively quick to anger, but our anger doesn't, doesn't manifest itself in straightforward aggression. We're just passive aggressive, so we, we get angry and we talk. We just talk to everybody except for the person we have the problem with and kill their character. 
Practical example. What's your speech like? Because what he's going to talk about in a few chapters is the tongue is almost impossible to tame. Because, as Jesus would say, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When someone says something, when you have that anger, when you have that frustration, and all of a sudden the verbal filter that we all have goes away for a second, and you say something, and everybody says, where did that come from? It came from your heart. So Jesus says, come on. This, what I'm talking about, again, is not a sense of a of total behavior modification, though I do want you to engage in the fight. What I'm talking about is a heart transformation, a continual heart transformation. So let's check our, our speech. Let's check our language. He continues on to give us a wonderful second example in verse 27. He says, religion that got our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. It's not to read your Bible every single day, to spend at least 30 to 45 minutes in prayer, to fast. Those are important. He says, let me give you an example of pure religion. To look after the orphans and the widows, the marginalized, the people most susceptible to oppression, the people who could not stand up for themselves, the people who did not have a voice in their community. He says to look after them. In their distress, they're in distress. The, 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 the question isn't, or no, the question is not whether or not there are orphans or widows or people who are marginalized who are in distress. The, per, the point is, is the church, are the Christians looking after them? Not are the Christians feeling a slight sense of conviction when they drive by and there's a person on the side of the road and they're holding up a sign and you know you got two bucks in your wallet because you're the only person that carries cash anymore in America and you feel bad and so you go in and give your two bucks. That's not looking after. Looking after is a sense of constant, continual, mental preoccupation with a side of personal responsibility. This is why we exist as a church here. Because we feel a sense of responsibility in a neighborhood where many of our brothers and sisters are marginalized, voiceless. In a couple weeks, we're going to have the HOPE program that has the Freedom School that is a six-week-based literacy program because of, simply because of the fact that one of the most disadvantaged, one of the, one of the biggest underserved populations in our city are kids. Single mother, head of household, below the poverty line and income level, who almost systemically have no chance. Though they have every chance in Christ, and we want to be a church that doesn't just say, here's a, here's a VBS program for you. We want to look after you as best we can. We can't do everything. We're not going to be perfect at it. But there is an absolute preoccupation with the responsibility of the marginalized in our community. And that's not because we just decided one day we were going to white-knuckle our will into it. The point is, We realized how deeply God saw us in our sinfulness. We realized the depths through which we have been forgiven. I realized how sinful I am. And so when I look at my friend who's suffering from homelessness or who who is choosing homelessness or who has had a, a, a repeated cycle of addiction and dependency, sometimes to mask a different, deeper problem that they're self medicating with, or the mom who is doing her darn best job because she's working at Wendy's, but she just had some stuff that happened in her life. Maybe she made some decisions in her life, but for, for whatever reason, she is doing the best to provide for her kid. We feel a sense of responsibility, not because, well, I guess we ought to, because God has done so much for me. He stood up for me when I had no voice and I was dead in my sins. 
And he has given me an advantage life so that I can speak up for those. But that's not because I decide to be a good person. It's because I realize hearing, simply knowing, is of marginal importance. In fact, it's only as important as it has transformed my heart that I believe so deeply in Jesus in the cross, and what he's done for me. That I, when I hear his word and it speaks, that I immediately identify with the most marginalized person. I immediately go to my, when I, when I say that thing that I just, I can't believe I said, I say, God, what area of my heart am I withholding and not engaging in the battle? You see, there is a battle. There is a level of personal responsibility. But the personal responsibility starts with the belief that belief that Jesus saw me in my sinfulness, did not reject me, did not hate me, did not push me away, but did the most loving thing. He sent his son to die for me in recordable time, in recordable history, on the Roman cross. And if he would do that for me, as I daily go to him, as I daily spend time with him in the word, as I daily spend time with him in prayer, he reminds me, I'm the least of these. He reminds me of the depth through which he saved me. He reminds me of the extraordinary love of my heavenly father. And I'm compelled to not simply hear, but to do what I've heard. So everybody's different when it comes to this because everybody has different things that they're struggling with, that they're, that they're wrestling with. We all have different areas where we've heard and not done and heard and not done. We felt conviction and just kind of for some of us, we just stopped fighting. Here's my hope and my prayer. That you will not simply think that hearing information has intrinsic value towards sanctification. I hope and I pray that you know that you have a heavenly father who so deeply loves you. He wants what's best for you. And though we may not always agree with it, though it may not always be easy, though it may not always be integratable or easily integratable, and it might take a way more self-discipline than we think that we have, we have a God who will give us the strength, the power daily to become the people he has called us to be. So please, if nothing else, identify hearing is nothing. Living in response to the gospel is everything. If you don't know where to start, start in the book of James. Read a chapter a day. Read a chapter a day. Spend a couple minutes in prayer going to God and saying, God, just help me to become more aware of you. If you've already read through James, we said that a couple weeks Start with the book of John, 21 days, chapter a day. Begin to fall in love with the one who gave his life for you and see the extraordinary difference that that makes that gives you the power and the ability to not simply be hearers, but to be doers and to live like few people actually live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we are a community of strugglers. We will never be perfect in our obedience. But I pray that you are honored by our grind. 
to be more like you, Jesus. I pray that you are honored that we go to you daily, seeking you, wanting to know you, becoming more like you, being empowered by you, being inspired by you, Jesus, being convicted by you, but at the same time, not walking away from that conviction, doing nothing. Not thinking that simply acquiring information is significant towards sanctification, but that the gospel would be so deeply rooted in our lives, it would lead to transformation, transformation of our lives, transformations of our homes, transformation of our families, transformation of our communities, transformation of the city around us, of the world around us. As we are not deceived by hearing, but do what you have called us to do. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.